Hello, and welcome back to the Dungeon Master Corner. Uh, I'm Joe, your host and the Dungeon Master of the Alchemist Club. I am joined here today by... Hi, I'm Matt. Uh, normally, Matt plays Leyland, as you might as you might know. Uh, I would hope so, considering how far <laughs> and how deep into the podcast this is. And if this is your first time joining us, I'm sorry. Uh, you know what? I think I would rather start them here than at, like, episode one. Mm, maybe. <laughs> anyway, um, if you are not familiar, this is the DM's Corner, where I, the host of, and Dungeon Master of the Alchemist Club, talk to one of my friends who is also a Dungeon Master. And we just chat about things. Uh, we've done two previously. The first was with Waffle slash Terrajax, and the second was with Zach slash Falrock. And this time we have Matt slash Leyland. Um, I'm pretty excited for this one uh, because Matt Matthew is a a baby dungeon master. Oh yes, it's been like a pandemic dungeon master. Really? Yeah, it's like what a year. You've been DMing for a year. Yeah, yeah, about, yeah, like, literally, I think we had one session before, no, no, it's only been during the pandemic, so yeah, just a little over a year, so. Uh, so I'm, it's going to be very refreshing for me to get a fresh take on somebody who is new to the experience, uh, especially considering the campaigns that you have run, and this is, I can I can actually ask you because you've only run two uh yes. to talk about them just a little bit. So they're both set in a world I created which um I mean isn't too too far out there. I mean it's just, you know, kind of a, a typical fantasy world but kind of created a, a pantheon and uh you know, a a setting and a little bit of history and whatnot um more so just uh creating a kind of an environment in a world uh specifically where the first campaign started just where in the, the human realm where magic had been kind of become outlawed i've always i always think that's an interesting idea when magic is something that people have and are able to do becomes you know something that's not allowed how people respond to that and how people try to get around, get around that and whatnot. So that, that's kind of where it started. Um, for that specific work, uh, campaign. And then, uh, the other campaign, uh, started with a different group of friends uh, and a bunch of people who had never played before or, or were new players or fairly new players, um, in the same world, but that one was kind of based loosely off of the uh the uh oh man now the name escapes me because i've called it my own thing candle but, keep. uh yes candle keep and uh the mysteries of there because i just think that's such an awesome uh location in the uh D, D lore and whatnot so just kind of created a setting for that in my world as well so uh, they have been, they are very vastly different in tone and structure and <laughs> uh, 
just about everything, um, mainly because of uh, just who's playing it and whatnot. But I think it's uh, they both have their merits, and it's been really interesting just to play with two very different group of people and see how they um, take on the story and handle different situations and whatnot. Because it's also very different from our podcast as well. So it is very much so. Yeah, and it's super neat that you have a campaign that is mostly either new players or players who haven't who have played before but it's been a long time because mm-hmm. i think that provides a very interesting flavor to the table as well and it's been a long time since i've ever had to dm like a whole group of new people so that always strikes me as is interesting and i may poke at you to talk more about your experiences with different kinds of players in a bit, but I wanted to go back to the, the fact that you've created a world where magic can be outlawed because this is very antithetical to who I am as a person. I think magic is the bee's knees and, you know, Joe, the wizard, etc. So it always features very prominently in all of my games. Um, What, aside from the interesting, like, consequences of most players in fifth or most characters in fifth edition these days have access to some sort of magic or another was there anything beyond just that sort of mechanical mix-up or the that sort of motivated you to to do a low magic or magic is not necessarily low magic magic is just frowned upon or forbidden or punishable well i feel like with, with some kind of knowing who uh, some of the people who were going to be in my campaign were and the, the type of characters they wanted to play and the way they play D&D. Like, uh, magic is sometimes can almost be just a get-out-of-jail-free card in just any situation. Like, you know, it just can just be a way too easy way to get you out of any any you know pickle you're in or help you with you know what you're trying to accomplish and i wanted to just kind of put people on their toes a bit where if you couldn't use magic or if you knew that there'd be consequences if you did use magic would it make you play differently or would it make you think differently or role play differently or you know just have to try try to do something in a way that you know, kind of just goes against just, oh, I'm going to, you know, cast uh, silence and get through this area really easily or something, right? Like, mm-hmm. I just I just like, you know, trying to get people to have to think a little bit more about different situations and scenarios rather than just, oh, let me look at my ability list and you know, oh, there we go, that's perfect, and move on from there. Uh-huh. That's, uh, I like that a whole bunch. How, and I say this because I am, confession to your listeners, a player in both of these campaigns that he's running, <laughs> uh, a relatively recent addition to the one with the newbie players, but I was part of the original group and the other one. So I have, I kind of have an idea of the answer to this question. But for the listeners, how successful would you feel that that 
approach has been with the table that you have? Uh, it was hit or miss. Um, I kind of introduced a, uh, introduced kind of a, uh, a magical, like, cone, like a magical cone or something, a magical cone of silence field that they could use that had kind of limited usage, um, that was able to help them in a couple of situations, but, um, don't think it completely had the intent that I wanted, but I don't know if that was my fault or just, um, making scenarios not open enough or not giving enough information that's where it's like you know uh for me as a dm it kind of i blame myself a little bit when things don't go the way i thought they would or i'd want them to or if i think players are frustrated or something so i'm like well i could have you know given them different uh scenarios or had another way of going about something but um I think there were both positives and negatives to it. Um, they're out of that situation now anyways, and I think everyone's happy about that. So take that for what you will. So That's fair. Yeah, it's making sure that your players have the information that they need and then being able to respond when they go off off notes is one of the like pillars of dungeon mastering and it's the one i think that probably takes the most practice because yeah it requires you to be creative and to be able to improv and to be able to like uh what's the word i want mediate disputes because a lot of times players Mm -hmm. will like if they're doing something that they want to do and they think they should be able to do and you're like no that doesn't work in this situation then you have to like argue them down without also pissing them off yes so and this for our listeners um who may not know i am a in real life a teacher and i've found that dungeon mastering is actually got a lot of similarities to teaching because of kind of what 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 you just said is you never know exactly like in teaching how your kids are going to how the students are going to respond to uh your lesson or if they're going to get it or and how they're going to do when you give them the assignment just like how you have no idea how the players are going to react to any given scenario and whatnot and as a teacher as a dm like i can come up with different what ifs that i think are going to happen but it's almost always ever not what actually ends up happening yeah so i i think um what i'm trying to get better at is just having more just having more things prepared for that inevitability of either oh they completely bypassed something i was planning on or so i can rear them back in or just okay well then what's going to happen next so that that's that's where I'm I think I'm learning and just kind of growing in that area is just trying to always have something else ready even if I can't always, you know, do what I wanted to do because of how they handle the situation. So. Yeah. That's that's interesting and we're going to have to do this again in like 
two years and bring you back to see how that pans out. Because I've actually gone in completely the opposite direction, and I tend I prepare a lot less than I do now, or I than I used to back when I was first starting out, because I found that no matter how many different branching paths or scenarios or backup plans I had, they would always find mm-hmm. the one thing that I had never prepared for. Yes. So my notes now, like they tend to be blocks of like, here are the big ideas I want to get across in this session. Maybe we fight these things or we talk to these NPCs. Um, but like there are legitimately sections where I just have blocked off the party does party things for 30 minutes. Yeah. Um, and go ahead. For, for us, I feel like you, for, for us in Alchemist Club, that's totally necessary because of you never know what Desmond or Terrajux is going to want to get into. So, but um, for our characters, I think it, or for, for my characters in the campaign, sometimes I don't know if I have enough for them or if there's enough to lead them on with. So I just always try to prepare everything until when they, when they, when they've shown me, they're just going to want to go off and do on their own. Then I'd probably get to that point. But I think right now I'm still having to at least breadcrumb trail them along a little bit. Yeah. That's totally fair, especially for the new players who don't really have a grasp on like what they're, what the possibilities are or how you move in the space of Dungeons and Dragons. Mm -hmm. So that's that's a good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then your other table of not newbies are kind of mostly a a good chunk of them are mostly interested in how, how cool they can look when they blow things up. Yes. Yes, and then that that has its other that's that has its own struggles, but that's where it's very satisfying to knock them down a couple pegs and, and make <laughs> them realize sometimes they can get blown up too. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's a it's a very different style of Dungeons and Dragons than I play or really enjoy even DMing for. Mm-hmm. Which if you haven't guessed, listeners, if, if you haven't listened to any parts of the Alchemist Club at all whatsoever, I tend to prefer approaching D&D as kind of a collaborative storytelling experience. Um, some of the players at Matt's table are there to play D&D as like a tactics game, where they're mostly interested in maneuvering around the battle grid and fighting the bad guys. And that's a perfectly valid way to approach the game. It's just often at loggerheads with how I usually run my tables. Yeah, and I, I definitely, like, the reason I got into it with the podcast being the first time I played and whatnot wasn't for the fighting. I mean, I still, like, 100 episodes in was sometimes lost in the battle and whatnot. It was all about the the story and the role-playing for me as well so yeah playing with or or running a campaign with people who are all about battling definitely can be challenging at times yes because (sighs) you still have you still have to you know uh, i mean it still is about your players and whatnot so you know being mindful of what they're looking for and what they want and making sure they enjoy it is still 
completely valid. So, yes, that is at heart the dungeon master is there to facilitate the enjoyment of others. Yes, that can be made challenging from uh, when you're trying to balance half of a party that wants story and half that wants to fight. Oh yes, absolutely. I was going to go somewhere else with that, but I've forgotten. So I will instead ask a different question. Do you enjoy being a player more or a dungeon master more? Oh, it really depends, I think, on the day. Because I, I enjoy, especially when, when, cause when I have an idea for the story and... Like as and then like I feel like the characters are really into it and whatnot. Like I love just writing that story and planning it out, and then finally like you know, you know having that session and and seeing how people react to it and whatnot. But that also can get very tiresome, and then and then inevitably you know everyone. I mean, I mean they happen in the podcast too. We have those sessions that just don't go at all how you planned or how you wanted them to mm-hmm. and that can be very frustrating but i feel like as a player typically like you are you enjoy i mean there's something that you enjoy about every session just about so it's hard to so i always enjoy playing whereas dming can be very stressful at times <laughs> so yes uh probably would have to lean towards the playing side but i i do i do enjoy dming and creating the story and then seeing like how people you know get into experiencing the story yeah i think being a dungeon master is ultimately more rewarding but it comes at a much higher cost like there's it's a it's a significant drain on your mental resources it can be very taxing yeah i think go ahead how many how many how long had you played before you dm the first time so i started playing dnd when i was a freshman in high school which would have been 2004 yeah like winter december january 2004 2005 somewhere in there i don't remember the exact dates um and i played on and off all through high school and then i went to college we went to we all uh most of the people in the campaign all went to the same university so we met there and i was um I wanted to play D&D more, but I didn't know anybody who could run a game. So I was like, you know what? I'll do it. I'm going to run a game so that I can play Dungeons and Dragons. So I'd been playing for four years, and then I started actually running games myself. Mm -hmm. And that was a disaster. (laughs) The first couple of sessions I ran. Absolute chaos. I mean, I don't know how they how they aren't chaos though. The first few times you run your own campaigns and whatnot, because I mean, inevitably, like something. I mean, at least you had a bit more experience. I feel like still, even when I'm running them, I don't know that half of my players know the rules better than I do. So um, when I'm 
you know, spouting off stuff and whatnot, and I'm actually Googling it as I'm saying it. Um, <laughs> yeah, like, there's a lot of disasters that could happen there. I mean, there's that, and then I also invited a dozen people to play. Nine of them showed up. Oh, dear. We were all, one of, yeah, we were all clustered around that old ping pong table in the common room. <laughs> and it was just a mess. Um, but... It's amusing that you've that that since then you've told me never to do more. Than never like do six that. I, why do I? All of my <laughs> advice, everything I tell you that has a never do this attached to it, I learned that from personal experience. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, but going back to your, like, still, like you've you've seen me. You you have been. The listeners have seen me like, okay, I just need to look this up real quick. Nobody can reasonably be expected to mm-hmm. have all of the rules of Dungeons & Dragons memorized, especially the DMs who are also juggling NPCs, storylines, locations, and trying yeah. to herd all of these cats that have character sheets in the direction that they need to go to progress the story. Like, it's It's unreasonable to be mm-hmm. able to expect anyone to be able to just summon up a statistic from page 297 of the dmg yes and above and beyond that and this is to all of you out there in radio land who are thinking about being a dungeon master and being like but i don't like i don't want to memorize all the rules don't and if you have a player that gets uppity at you for the way that you've ruled something Tell them you're the dungeon master. You make the rules. Yeah. Yeah. That's... I mean, go ahead. If it's not, you know, like, you know, the, the you also don't want to derail a whole campaign or a whole session because of, you know, nitpicking rules and whatnot. Just, you know, at, some, at times I feel like it's just, you got to make a ruling and move on and, Yes. There's really, truly an issue with it. Talk about it with that person afterwards. But I think, yeah, it's really easy to get stuck in the weeds with anything like D&D where there's so many rules out there. But also D&D has enough vagary in it where <laughs> I think there is meant to be interpretation as well. Yeah. And I... Finding what rules work for your group and what rules don't, that's an experience that you have to, like, that's a journey you take together, but they're also, and the longer you play and the more you DM, you'll figure out, like, okay, these particular things, I don't like how the rulebook handles them, so we're going to do them this way instead, and that's perfectly valid. It's important that you communicate that to your players ahead of time, um... Yep. or establish precedent for it, but um, never feel that you have to be bound to the rules as written because they're there yeah. as guidelines and you're the dungeon master and you need to do what feels best for you and what is ultimately going to be the best for your table. Absolutely. What else do so, we... Yeah, go ahead. One of the things that I have struggled with a lot as a DM, and part of this is just my over-planning and then sessions not going as far as I plan, but, you know, I, I tell my characters and my players to, 
you know, create backstories and whatnot, because I really want those to be a part of the campaign and whatnot. But now I'm finding, like, I feel bad because, oh, I haven't done anything with this person's backstory at all. So how do you balance your story with including the your players' character stories and whatnot? This is one of the reasons I think it's very important to do a session zero, um, mm -hmm. like a character creation session, or if you've got players who are very enthusiastic and already have characters, to at least sit down and talk with them about this sort of thing. And having played in your campaigns, I don't feel that you've done a poor job of it, certainly. Um, but what you want to do is tease out this is this is how i typically approach these things you may find a dinner uh, a dinner listen to me um <laughs> i'm not hungry um <laughs> you might find a different way to do this always eat before podcasting <laughs> yeah apparently um what i what i have done in the past what i typically do is i will when the players give me their their backstory, try to tease out uh, sort of major events or people or themes that I can sort of integrate into places for the story I have planned. Um, or, yeah. and some of it is just sheer stroke of luck, random bouts of inspiration. Like, um... I wasn't, like, I didn't have any of the stuff that has interacted with your guys' backstory in the Alchemist Club planned from the very beginning. It's just sort of been like, okay, we're going, the party's going in this general direction. Uh, does that, oh, that kind of matches up with something Falrock was talking about. Let's put the city of Agaton on, on the way here and here are these characters mm -hmm. from his backstory. They live there. We're, how, how are we going to interact with that? Um, how have yeah. the actions of the character in the past influenced what is currently happening in the present? Um, yeah. So I guess it's, it's really a matter of finding what aspects of the backstory sort of click with what you already have planned and then sort of massaging your story or the backstory a little bit to integrate as best as it possibly can. Yeah. And again, yeah. this is why like new DMS 100% before you start playing, sit down with your players, talk about the setting, talk about sort of general, like high magic versus low magic, um, population center, like the big things that you would want to know to inform a good backstory. And then you can have a back and forth with your players about, and this is something I do as well, like, okay, that detail in your backstory is really cool, but it doesn't quite work with the setting of the world. What if we try doing this instead? Or maybe you have a suggestion. Yeah, no, that makes that makes a lot, lot of sense. I think we did... I think I... I don't think we did a complete session zero in that way with with my campaigns as much i think i kind of more shared a lot of the information and 
you know, people shared their backstories and we kind of talked about them one-on-one or through text or whatnot. And I think I, I just need to do a better job of kind of like you were saying, we're going in this direction or, Oh, you know, what landmarks are nearby or who, who could be woven into what's going on right now in, in our main story a bit better and whatnot. And that, that that's that's a good way to to go about it a bit more because I also wanted to feel genuine and whatnot and uh, not just uh, oh we're gonna throw in we're gonna throw Fall Rock in here just so Fall Rock doesn't feel left out or something. Yeah, um, on kind of a related topic, this is something I've wanted to ask you for a while, and okay, uh, I've been curious about how you felt about the jokier characters in your one campaign because (laughs) some of them are a little on the silly side. Yes. So I think it's grown on me. Um, Like I'm all about, like, obviously, you know, we have jokier characters in uh, the alchemist club as well. Um, but um, I think what threw me off at first with it was like, oh, I'm trying to do this. I'm trying to do this story, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, you're messing with my, you're messing with what I'm trying to, to you know, get across. And, and I think that's where it was a struggle where it was like, oh, I'm trying to, I'm trying to tell this story. I'm trying to, you know, get you all, you know to this uh to these locations or to these uh events and whatnot and so that you can you know do something crazy or awesome or whatever and you know okay we had a good laugh but let's move on okay now it's now it's a repeated joke okay now it's not funny anymore okay now i want the heavens to open up and lightning to come down and you know, <laughs> engulf this this character in burning hellfire. But <laughs> yeah, I it was I struggled a little bit with um, the first few sessions where I you know I typically approach character creation very kind of on a serious note, unless it's explicitly a, a one off or something that it doesn't matter as much. But coming into the campaign and. Okay, here's my character Melkor. Here's uh, another character Luna. Here's the third character. Blatant pop culture reference. Yeah, was a yeah. little. I, I it put me on the back foot for a couple of sessions before I sort of integrated it into my expectations. Yeah, I mean, and that's where it's hard because it's like, you know, I don't want to also be that dm who just tells people no you can't do that or no make a different character come up with a different name but you know it yeah and i it's just that balance and sometimes that's and i I think in in the future i would just be like okay how can you okay if you want to do something silly like that then sure but how can you kind of weave it more into you know if i give you all of this backstory for the campaign and for the world 
and whatnot, how can you kind of weave it into that a little bit rather than just do something silly that just seems for the sake of being silly because there's that character is not in this world. So why, like, I yeah. don't, like what you're referencing does not make sense to anyone, but you really. And I, that's, those are very valid points wanting to make sure that everybody is, you know, happy with what they've done. But, and this is more like wise old DM Joe advice for all the newbies out there. It's okay to say no. You have every right to say no to something like that if it doesn't match your world or you think that it's going to set an inappropriate tone for what you're doing. You can tell the players no. And it might cause a bit of strife or a headache for you. But, and I'm not saying, like, the ones in your campaign, I think, did a relatively decent job of sort of integrating and taking themselves a little more seriously than their names would suggest. Um, but part of, part of that is one, you want, you want to make sure that the characters respect the setting and you want to make sure that the players are respecting the work that you are putting into the campaign to make it more immersive. Uh, Um, that's definitely true. Yeah. And saying no is well within your right and your purview. It's, your table. You are running it for them to have a good time, but you need to make sure that your authority as a dungeon master is respected there as well. Yeah. And I think that's where it's tricky where you're the new DM and the and the people with that campaign that you've been playing with have been playing playing Dungeons and Dragons longer than you have and also you're also a new DM and they've played longer and been a DM as well. So it's where it's, that's where, you know, it is a little tricky line that you're kind of feel like you're, you're on. And that's, that's something I've never really had to deal with because I think after I started DMing, I think almost all of the players I have ever played with are people that I either taught to play D&D or caught them pretty early on in learning to play. I'm trying to think if there's anybody significant. Waffle obviously has done a fair bit outside of um, anything. You know, he he played a fair bit before mm-hmm. I met him. Beyond that, I taught basically, or I started, I say taught, you don't really teach somebody to play D&D, so you learn with them. Yeah. Um, I started, I think, everybody that I played with in college, for the most part, which is kind of surreal to think about now that I've actually drawn attention to it. Um, Zach Zach in there as well, or... I'm trying to remember if Zach had played before. I don't think so, because I remember him coming to watch a couple of sessions that I ran. Uh, There was that one summer that I I stayed down there um, doing my senior research and had run a campaign. And I remember him coming to watch a couple of those sessions, and then I think he started playing after that. But I could be wrong about that. He'll have to fact check me on that. Um, mm-hmm. 
but yeah, for the for the most part, it's been fresh players for me that I have brought into the fold. Yeah. So I I appreciate the it's it's refreshing to hear about the challenges and the perspective that goes with being the newest player and dungeon master in a group of in running a table for a group of experienced people. And I and think it's very impressive that you have avoided letting them just kind of walk all over you with that. That's where I think being a teacher kind of helps a little bit too. Yes. <laughs> so, but, and, and, but it does actually highlight the con cause I feel like that's with the, with the other group that's with my second group where most of them are newer or, or brand new. It, it is a very different uh, feel as well. And more to more to how your groups, it sounds like are typically done. So, yeah. Oh, goodness. Um, what is your, what is your favorite part of dungeon mastering? Ooh. Um, I think it's gotta be when you kind of throw something at the characters you're not they're not expecting or catch them by or, or like just like either you surprise them or you stump them or i i don't know like i kind of i kind of enjoy that little bit of just kind of maybe it's because of having been in so many situations in the alchemist club prior to that where I was in that boat where I'm like, I have no idea what to do or I'm, I am, I'm <laughs> clueless here basically. So um, maybe it, it, maybe it's from that, but just being able to um, just, uh, you know, throw something at the players that completely either surprises them, stuns them, baffles them, or just, they are just unsure of how to tackle situations kind of like, just having that power a little bit over them to see uh-huh. and see how they react to it is nice. Um, in our campaign, in the in the original campaign, when you all were in the graveyard getting attacked by uh, the dire wolves and whatnot, and then I threw the big bad at you all, and it immediately just one shot one of the characters. And that kind of just left everyone like mouth agape, stunned. Uh-huh. I felt pretty happy about that little, um, little part. Just, uh, just to be able to like throw something at you, at you all, and just realize, oh, we're not gonna, we're not ready for this, basically. <laughs> so, yeah, that's always a nice little power trip. Yes. <sighs> I think my my favorites are probably the moments where and this has happened a few times on the Alchemist Club where I just have to like I've crafted a scenario and then I can step back and the players just role play the rest of it out themselves with minimal interaction from me or I'm supplying like the voice of an NPC or something but it's mostly them just role playing without any prompting mm-hmm. or prodding and it's it's a delightful feeling i i think it's one of my favorites probably yeah absolutely like just i mean i just enjoy the role playing in general 
I mean, out of all the D, everything in, in D&D with the role playing. So I, I mean, I could go without any, I could do a D&D campaign that has zero combat in it or just combat that doesn't actually involve abilities and whatnot. Yeah, that's, there are a couple of D&D groups that I sort of follow, one of which is um, Penny Arcade. They have their big, like, main games, and then one of them runs a game called the C-Team. And there was, at one point, one of his players asked the dungeon master, like, do you think you would this game work without any dice? And he was like, yeah, I think we could easily play this game without, without any dice whatsoever. And I was like, that's, I don't know that I'm quite that far down the, the storytelling scale, but I'm pretty close. There are episodes of the alchemist club where it's like, okay, I need to shoehorn a dice roll in here so that people remember we're playing Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, that's definitely true. I I wouldn't want to get rid of dice rolls completely, but like combat dice rolls, I I, like that being limited as much as possible. I think is like, especially in sometimes the alchemist club when like we have like, you know, all this different story stuff going on, and then suddenly a two-hour battle, you know, sometimes that can just be a detriment, I feel like, to the flow of everything that's been going on, you know, for, for you know, and that's just part of what happens, but, yeah, you and know, there's been, not really a way to avoid that, but. That's one of the things that I have really, like, when we first started doing this, I struggled a lot with how to make combat fit into the confines of a podcast episode how to make it listenable and how to make it meaningful and i'm still working on that last one but i think i've done a decent job of managing to compress combat into nice like bite-sized chunks that aren't too boring i think the way we've done um kind of how you did some of the stuff in cindrian and uh with uh taking back the teliferous and whatnot i think we did i think some of that was done quite well, where it was like these could have been long, drawn-out battles and whatnot, but uh, but instead they almost became like, you know, like kind of like cutscenes in a yeah. video game type thing. Little vignettes instead of yes. putting pieces on a grid and making you roll initiative, etc. Yes, exactly. That's been... When I first started like thought of doing that i thought it might be a good idea and it has proven pretty useful so far mm-hmm. uh we've got about we've been recording for about 45 minutes do you have was there anything you wanted to ask me or any questions you had um things you wanted to talk about because i've mostly just been kind of like prompting you so how did you go through the process of building the world of of the alchemist club like just the world in general like what what did you start with and where did it go from there because like for me like when i started building my world i started with like the general idea of like you know the magic not be you know magic kind of being outlawed or whatever and from that kind of shaped like the world around it and whatnot and the pantheon and everything else so 
what what was the beginning of shaping the alchemist club so this is this is partly me being uh somebody with chronic writer's block i would love to be a writer but i cannot it's very difficult for me to get words onto the page so i have from time to time ideas that are like you know what if x scenario i'd like to write about that and then i go to write about that and it doesn't happen because i'm bad at writing this was kind of one of those things where you like there's stories floating around about you know this world was an egg the whole time and People mm-hmm. are, you know, they're trying to prevent it from hatching or trying to mitigate the effects of it hatching. It was like, okay, what does that look like after the fact? What is it? What does a world that was an egg look like centuries after it has hatched? And that was kind of the the seed that ended up growing into the Alchemist Club. So uh, from there, it was yeah. like, okay, how? how does weather work on a planet that no longer has anything but a couple of floating land masses? How, you know, where does the fresh water come from? Where, you know, how, how is it all being held together? And that's one of the nice things about writing fantasy is that you can be like, the gods did it. And that <laughs> solves a lot of problems right yep, off the bat. And it's like, Oh, right. Yeah. We don't have to worry about where fresh water supplies come from because the goddess of water put a spring of eternal fresh water on the continent. Um, and then once I kind of worked out sort of the bigger mechanical questions, I delved into, okay, I want a nation of dwarves somewhere on this continent. What does that look like? Um, how does that integrate with the various different threads that I had um, already written about the nature of minerals and adamantine being what it is in the alchemist club and all that jazz. And then once I kind of had, so I started with the big picture and then I refined and added details and added details until I was getting into that fine grains, like the world lore document, which at this point, honestly, I could probably, if there was some way to like make that public, with the podcast, I could do that now because I don't think there's any kind of spoilery information in there. Um, I'm sure, I'm sure we could put it on on Twitter at least. Yeah, like that's make a, it view, make it as viewable in Google Drive and whatnot. We might do that. That's a good idea. Um, but yeah, I started with that kind of big, broad concept, and now you know I've worked it down until eventually I was writing the like history portion. You know, okay, this queen of Aldrax rose to power in this year, and that sort of thing. Does that answer your question? Uh, yes, um, f- for the most part. So now you've got really a lot of the story threads mostly figured out so it's just the finer details really that are like oh like characters of dying Gaia and whatnot or you know like names or or is it still like how far out plan do you have like the big picture stuff i have because i mean we have at least four or five major plot threads that are hanging and whatnot. So I'm assuming that you have all of those, at least some <laughs> level of planned. But... Yes. For the most part. 
Um, here's a fun fact for you. Dying Gaia didn't exist until like four days before you guys went there for the first time. Wow. Um, and that's one of those things where you want to, going back to our integrating player backstories, is like, okay, you guys are looking for the Lost Donk Hills. Zach, where would the Lost Donk Hills live? You know, what does the what does the Onyx Duchy look like? Help me help mm-hmm. me construct this because it's as important to him as it is to me, right? Probably more so yes. actually. Um generally speaking, like the big overarching plot of the Alchemist Club, the story that started with you guys locked up in jail cells run by a mad science cult. <clears throat> I have that and I've had that more or less worked out since the very beginning. <clears throat> a lot of the finer points, the smaller details, um, those tend to be a bit more on the fly. Like, yeah. Lady, you guys are always going to run into Faye at some point. Lady Blossom developed pretty early in terms of my writing. A lot of the things that about her story and kind of where those plot threads are going, those are also relatively freshly developed. Um, Interesting. Yeah. A lot of this is, this is a secret that I will, I will now share with the world. I'd say probably about 75% of my writing for the alchemist club happens in the shower when I'm like, (laughs) just, thinking my thoughts and I'll have an idea of like, that's really cool. I let me, how can I make that particular idea work, um, work into the campaign? Because I think that would make for a really neat story or a really cool scene for them to, to interact with. So it's, there's a lot in my case of sort of spur of the moment inspiration where I'll think of something that I think is really neat and be like, I want to make this fit into the story so I can share it with my players and whoever happens to be listening. That's yeah. That's interesting. Like I, I that, that's what I've always kind of wondered just because I always seen the podcast, it always comes out as like, it just, you know, and that's part of the storytelling that you do. Like it always comes out as like, you just had this ready or something all, all the time and whatnot. So I was just curious I'm More so. absolutely tickled that it comes off that way because especially things that are the party going kind of off the rails, I have to make up on the spot. Yes. Um, for example, when when you guys got off Teliferous to confront Saskia and ended up in her like bone, bone cavern, yes, did not have any of that ready. I had to like. As, as you may recall, I had to stop the session and be like, okay, we're not recording anymore because I need to go figure out what happens next. Um, but yeah, one of uh, improving is one of the most valuable skills that a dungeon master can have. Uh, being able to come up with stuff on the fly is very, very important. And it is something that you can practice and get better at. Oh, yes. Like, I've had to uh, improv many sessions already not because it didn't plan them but just because 
you people go immediately off track and you can't get them back. Uh-huh. So you just have to go with it. And some of those sessions have been the best sessions just because, you know, they're doing what kind of what they're wanting to do and you're, you're having to react and that can end up being a lot of fun. Yes. Yeah. So that's, that's like, I usually, I usually have big concepts planned and then the fine details I don't bother because they're going to, the players are going to alter those on the fly. Yes. Uh, that said, I did have a, a stroke of inspiration for the upcoming uh, Mountain Home Prison Break, which I'm kind of excited about now. That's I've been sad. waiting on that one for like 40 episodes. <laughs> like 40 sessions. I, I think, think it's actually going to happen now, though, is the thing. Better, because I'm going to... Leyland's going to give... Fall Rock, unmitigated hell if he keeps blowing off the fact that his you know his fiance is supposed, locked in jail. Yeah, yes, and we're just you know gallivanting across the continent. <laughs> yeah. Um, was there anything else you wanted to talk about? We are at fifty fifty three minutes. So you know, any any other subjects or closing remarks you wanna you wanna lay down for us? I think that's all about all I had. All right. Uh, yeah. So this has been this has been another DM's corner. This is absolutely delightful. Thank you for joining me, Matthew. Thank you for having me. I quite enjoyed it myself. I uh, I really like these. Um, next is probably going to be Christopher, uh, who I asked him if you. I asked both of you if you wanted to do today because our normal recording got rescheduled. Uh, he was—he said he wanted to try and have at least something prepped ahead of time, which, you know, if that's his process, that's his process. Uh, so I'm going to pester him about that. So when next time I want to record a DM's Corner, he's ready. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um. I'll have to ask Daniel if he wants to do one because he has of the of the Alchemist Club group the least experience uh, as a dungeon master. So I don't know how interested he would be in sitting down for a DM's corner, but we'll find out. We'll find out together. Um. So yeah, thank you, listener, for joining us for another pleasant chat about the intricacies and vagaries of dungeon mastering. You can find us on in all the usual places, and you can reach us in all the usual ways. Um, I've been Joe, your host, and the Dungeon Master for the Alchemist Club podcast. My guest today was... Matt, your baby Dungeon Master. And, uh, yeah, thanks for listening. I will see you as DM Joe in the next exciting installment of The Alchemist Club.